Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Hebrews chapter 9, 15 through 22. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of law had been established, had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Emily. Well, our passage this morning starts out with the word, therefore. And my college pastor always told me to say, when you come across the word, therefore, you should ask, what is the word, therefore, therefore? Um, So that word is there to point us back to what has come before, and it's important for us to just have a brief review of what we talked about last week, because that informs what we're going to be looking at this week. And last week, we learned about the tabernacle, and we learned about all of the rules and regulations uh, of the tabernacle, the process of going. uh, There's another slide that we have, the process of, of having to go into the Holy of Holies. And what we learned last week is that only a few got to go in to the tabernacle, and only one got to go in the presence of God. So we were kind of left with this reality whether there's a separation. In the Old Covenant, there's a separation between God's people and God himself. There's a separation because of man's sinfulness and because of God's holiness. And so there is a need for someone to mediate. There's a conflict. Oftentimes in life, when there's a conflict, if you can't solve that conflict, you get a mediator. You get someone who comes in and helps you, you know, figure things out, helps you come to an agreement. And in our text this morning, right out of the gate, it says, therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. But there's a problem with the old covenant system He's a mediator of a new covenant, but the problem, the old covenant system was that there was really nothing to work out. Man was sinful, God was holy, and therefore punishment had to be dealt, and, and they're left with punishment. They're left with a gap between God and themselves. But the good news this morning is that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and we're going to look at three realities that will help us to rejoice in the truth that Jesus bridges the gap of the gulf between sinful man and a holy God by his death and with his blood. So the first reality we're going to look at this morning in the text is death is needed to acquire 
and inheritance. Look again at verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So there's an inheritance uh, for us. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now you understand what a will is, not just our will, like our desires, but a will, like last will and testament. My wife and I have put together a will. Why would we put together a document called a will? Because it tells everyone what our desire is for our management of our resources or taking care of our family when we're gone. If we're called home to go be with the Lord, that's what the will is for. So we understand that, right? We understand that that's what a will is for. But a will is really useless as long as I'm alive, right? Not that not that someone's trying to take me out so that the will can come into effect, but the reality is, is the will doesn't actually go into effect until the person who wrote it dies. And that's what is, is shared with us this morning. A will is only activated when someone dies. But here's a reality. Few things stir up gratitude in people and, and joy like when, when they're made aware that they are the beneficiaries of a will that has significant resources coming. Maybe you know of someone who found out that they were the beneficiaries of a will where there were a lot of resources. Or maybe you've seen a movie where someone out of the blue finds out of some distant relative that they didn't even know they had. They were named as the only person of their will and they were overwhelmed with all kinds of resources. That's the benefit of the new covenant. There are blessings for us. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty might become rich. We are the beneficiaries of a vast inheritance. And that's not simply, that's not a financial That's not in this world we're going to get a bunch of money and a bunch of stuff. No, we have the blessing of the freedom from condemnation, as we talked about last week. We have the hope of eternity with God. Rather than being separated from God, we get to be with God. And when we go get to be with God, we actually do get rewards. We get heavenly rewards. When we invest here in things that we know are going to last for eternity, there are rewards that we are given. He transforms us to live changed lives. And then when we are obedient to him, when we invest in his kingdom, we get rewards when we get there. But none of that goes into effect without the death. Of someone, and that death was in Christ. When Jesus died, he was both, he became the, the activator of this blessing that we receive, and then he is also the mediator of the covenant. He, he's the one that bridges the gap between the Holy One and the ones that aren't holy. 
So death is needed to inquire the inheritance, and that death has occurred. We're not waiting to start to receive the benefits of that. Certainly, we don't receive the full benefit of it, and so we see Jesus face to face. We struggle with sin. We struggle with temptation. We see the fallenness of this world, but yet, as Christians, we already begin to experience those benefits, as we talked about last week. We don't have to feel the weight of condemnation. We can feel the freedom that forgiveness brings. So reality number two is blood is required for the forgiveness of sins. Look at your Bibles again. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's lots of talk of blood, 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 blood. I don't know about you, but in my house, there's, I'm I'm the one that has to deal with the blood because People don't want to, or they can't, or even when you start talking about it, they start to start to feel funny. So I know it can be hard to talk about blood. And there is a reality over the centuries, particularly in the first century, Christians were, were kind of looked at as being weird and odd because they talked about this blood all the time. Even Jesus had said, you know, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So people thought that the Christians are weird because they're talking about the blood, but that's, that's kind of rooted in the old covenant system, that blood was required for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, the picture that we read here is something that Moses did. He sprinkles the blood. Now, I have a cup here. That, that is red, but I can assure you it is not filled with blood. This is just for illustrative purposes only. And the people in the front row have been warned. Because the reality, the description that we just read, like at the beginning of the covenant, when the tabernacle was set up for the first time and they're initiating everything, Moses takes it and he sprinkles it, right? He sprinkles it. I think I only told one of them and they were supposed to told all of them, but that's Okay. But if I walked around all of you, imagine, imagine that sight. Imagine how gross that would be, how awkward that would be. But imagine how sobered you would be in that moment. This isn't a game. This isn't playing religion. This is serious. When you think of the picture as, as, as awkward as that may feel in our context and culture, there was a need for blood. There was a need for blood to be shed. And then sacrifices continued with blood. In Leviticus 17.11, for the life of a creature is in the blood 
and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. One commentator said this. He said, during the thousand plus years of the old covenant, there were more than a million animal sacrifices. So considering that each bull sacrifice has spilled a gallon or two of blood and each goat a quart, the old covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. And during the Passover, for example, a trough was constructed from the temple down into the Kidron Valley for the disposal of the blood. Because sin demands the shedding of blood. And in the criticism of even the early Christians, or even now, someone would come as one man did after hearing a sermon about the blood of Christ. He said, my God is not blood, he's not a bloodthirsty God that you have pictured. My God is one of love and needs not to be appeased with blood. I have no respect for the God whom you worship. And that's, that's how the world kind of looks in. No respect because they have created a God in their image and their desires rather than realizing they were created in God's image. We all were created in God's image to bring God glory. And when we don't bring God glory by separating ourselves from God, by going our own way, there is a requirement of blood. As commentator Ray Stedman helpfully responds to this kind of accusation. He says, the blood was meant to impress on them that sin cannot be set aside, even by a loving God without a death occurring. His judicial sentence. In Ezekiel, it says, the soul who sins is the one who will die, must be carried out. This text is meant to sober us that sin is costly. In God's economy, sin demands death. So this should sober us. Sin is serious, and forgiveness is costly. It's easy for us in our cultural context because sin seems to be just flowing in so many different ways, just it seems like there's an open sewer of sinfulness. And we can think, well, we're not doing that. So we must be fine. But just one sin separates us from God, puts us in the place where the people of God were outside of the tabernacle, outside of the Holy of Holies. All it takes is one. Sin cannot be alleviated by some self-help program. Sin cannot be alleviated just by talking about it. Sin cannot be swept under the rug. Oh, it's just, it's just a little one. I, I'm not, I don't need to talk about it. It's, it. It'll be fine. It'll work itself out. Sin leads to death. Even the desires in our heart. James tells us that that desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. I don't like talking about death. 
but it should sober us because forgiveness is costly. Death is the only payment for sin. Every single sin that is committed against God, it's punishable by death. Every single one. Every single one. No matter how grievous in our eyes or how, matter how light it may seem in our eyes, every single one. And either you will pay for them by your death or someone's death is going to have to pay for your sin. The good news this morning is if you've not trusted in Christ, you can trust in Christ this morning. You can trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. But I can assure you that when you stand before God on the last day, when every person stands, because every person is going into eternity, every single person is going into eternity. How are you going into eternity? When you stand before God and the judgment is going to happen, will you stand there washed in Christ's blood or will you give your own? So I'd encourage you, if you've not trusted in Christ, to talk with someone before you leave today. Talk with me. Talk with one of the elders. Talk with one of the small group leaders. This is serious. I'm not, meant to, I'm not saying this to try to, to scare you into something. I, I feel compelled because of the truth that we find in God's word for you to know this truth and be sobered by this truth. And for those who have trusted in Christ, there, there are these realities that we've covered. Death is needed to acquire an inheritance. Blood is required for the forgiveness of sins. We must take sin seriously. Our response as Christians isn't just to go, well, yep, Jesus covered my sin. Absolutely, we should sing that. We should exalt that, but we should be sobered by sin. We should be marked by a spirit of repentance and contrition. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas godly grief produces death. Meaning, we shouldn't just... We shouldn't just confess sin when we get caught. Right? When you're at, if you're at home and your hand is caught in the cookie jar. I don't know if anyone experienced that in their house growing up or maybe this last week where your hand was caught. Maybe it's a metaphorical cookie jar. Maybe there's something else that you aren't supposed to have. You get caught. And right away, oh, yes, mommy, I'm so sorry that I did that. And you know you're not sorry. You know that as soon as she turns her head, you know where that jar is and you're going to sneak it again. That's not godly sorrow. When we get caught, godly sorrow is when we realize, wait, we have sinned against the holy God. God, there's no hope for me apart from Christ. Confession is an expected part of the Christian experience because we see how serious sin is. Because we see the consequences of sin. So it should be a part of our, our regular experience. Why should it be a part? Where do I get that? Well, think about the Lord's Prayer. What did Jesus say in the, in the Lord's Prayer? He, he taught us to pray, forgive us our sins or forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's kind of expected that we are going to stumble and fall, and that needs to be a regular part of our prayer time, regular part of our fellowship, 
When was the last time you confessed your sin to God? When was the last time you went and said, God, I, I forgive me for blank? When was the last time there was confession in your home? Maybe with a spouse or with a child or child to a parent, with a family member. When was the last time that happened? Why, why is that not happening? Not that we as Christians are on a sin hunt. We need to look for sin all the time and focus on sin. And we're going to focus on Christ. That's what this passage focuses on. That's what this whole book focuses on. But may we not trifle with sin. When's the last time you confess sin in your small group? Apart from getting caught. Yeah, yeah, my wife caught me doing X. And I said I was sorry. When have you come and said, guys, I'm, I'm struggling with this. And, and, I, and I've sinned against my wife. Or I've sinned against my brother. Or I've sinned against my children. Is confession enough of a habit in your home that your family or your friends feel comfortable helping you grow in your walk with Christ? Can they come to you and share with you, hey, I noticed this thing, you know, I'm not God, I'm not trying to judge you, but there's this pattern that I'm seeing in your life. You know, someone who has a pattern of confession in their life where they're coming and they're sharing, it's easy to go to them. It's easy to have fellowship with them. It's easy to walk with them to help them grow in their walk with Christ because they've already started being aware that they are separated from God apart from Christ. And they, they haven't yet seen Jesus face to face. The work isn't completely finished and there's a pattern in their life. All that comes from kind of the awareness of the blood. It should make a difference in our daily life. It should make a difference in our church. We should have a pattern of confession of sin. And if that hasn't been happening, that, that falls on me. I'm aware more recently, maybe I haven't shared this openly, but I, I've been convicted that I've been self-sufficient as your pastor. What, what does that mean? I've been, I've been self-sufficient. It means that I haven't prioritized prayer enough in my life. I became convicted over the last year that that I hadn't been prioritizing prayer. I'd been praying, but I hadn't been prioritizing prayer as much as I'd been prioritizing preparing messages to preach on a Sunday morning or study. So I've, I've encountered some, uh, or started meeting with some, some pastors online over the last couple of months because I want to grow in prayer because I realize I've not been dependent because that, that trickles down to us not being a dependent church. So if I haven't shared that publicly, I need to share that right now. I just found that I've just been self-sufficient. That's not trusting God. That's not believing what Jesus said, that apart from me, you can do nothing. I think that's a, a truth that we need to treasure and hold onto as a church. But functionally, if I'm not prioritizing extended times of prayer, I'm saying I can do it. So it starts with me. I've brought that to other brothers and, and have sought to want to pray more in different contexts and to lead us in prayer. Where, where is God 
provoking you. Rather than being a church that that thinks we're fine because we're in a cultural context where sin is celebrated, I feel like every time I read the news, there's new stuff that people have made up to sin. And it's so prevalent, it it can feel like, yeah, we're not that, so we're fine. But we're not fine. Because Isaiah, I don't know, as you, if you know much about Isaiah, you know, he followed God. He was obedient to do lots of things and uh, certainly faced consequences for doing that. But when he encountered God, this is how he responded. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament worshipers, they were aware of sin because they encountered the blood. And then they couldn't have access to God. But yet us, on this side of the cross, as worshipers, on this side of the cross of Christ, we can have the same encounter not by seeing the physical blood sprinkled, but by being reminded of what Christ has done. That's why we sing the songs that we do to be reminded of what Christ has done. That's why we take communion regularly so that we can be reminded of the blood of Christ, so that it can be regular, a part of our experience, so that we can have that experience of of being sobered. That's why we, we sing songs Like there is a fountain by William Cowper who wrote, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Because the blood of Christ, rather than staining your clothes, that blood washes us clean. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile is he, Wash all my sins away. May we look at the thief that was on the cross next to Jesus and go, I'm no better than him. But I can look forward to the same joy and freedom that's found in Christ because we have hope now that the Christ has appeared. That's the third truth. We have hope now at the appearance of Christ. Look back at your Bibles. Look at verse 23. It says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus appeared in the presence of God. The Old Testament places, as we studied last week, were applied to things that were made by human hands, but Jesus' blood goes into heavenly places. Jesus did what no one else had ever done. He entered into the full presence of God. This is kind of a picture. We could read all of Revelation 4. We're not going to read the whole thing, but this is kind of the feel. Like when when the four creatures are in the presence of God in Revelation 4, this is how they respond. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
They're not entering into a service where they're just kind of mingling around and, and talking about the latest news. No, they enter in, and this is how the 24 elders respond. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Jesus goes into that presence, and there's not a wondering like on the Day of Atonement, remember we talked about last week how the people of God would have waited. You know, is he, is he going to come out? Is the priest going to come out? He's going to make it out. There's no wondering if he's going to make it out because he can stay and he represents us in God's presence. It says on our behalf, Jesus is on your side because he's in God's presence, the mediator for you. So if you ever are discouraged and you're wondering, yeah, I don't I don't know if God cares. Don't believe the lie Satan's trying to tell you. He is in God's presence on our behalf. And he presents himself as the lamb that was slain, the righteous substitute. We tell these things. As John, uh, the revelator, said this, he said, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father. You have an advocate with the Father. God will never reject us if Jesus Christ represents us. God will never reject us if Jesus Christ represents us. So if you feel hindered ever to go before God, if you feel hindered to go to your brother or sister in Christ to, to confess sin, you don't have to worry about what they think. All you have to do is worry about what God thinks because if you're washed in the blood of Christ, you won't ever be rejected by God, ever. So Jesus appeared in the presence of God for us and Jesus appeared once to offer himself for us. We've learned this truth time and again in Hebrews. Look at verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have to, had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once after that, comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. He was offered once, not perpetually. He doesn't have to go every year. He doesn't have to go every day. It was sufficient once for all. No more guilt, no more shame, no more restricted access. He offered himself. We were cleansed by his blood like the temple was cleansed. And now we become his dwelling place. Rather than having to go to a place, we are his place. In Ephesians 2.22, Paul says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you aren't going anymore to a place. In fact, you become the place. When Jesus went to the Father, he sent his Holy Spirit to come to be your helper, and he dwells with you. Think about that picture. He dwells with you. Now you become the temple. So when you read about those uh, truths and other parts of Scripture, your body being the temple, 
Like, no, you're the place where God is going to show his glory. Your transformed life is how God shows his glory to this lost and dying world because he dwells in you. It's not because you're something. It's because he is something. So he appeared once so that we now can experience forgiveness and and entrance into his presence all the time. And thirdly, as we hope now in the appearance of Christ, Jesus will appear again. Look at the verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Not to deal with sin. Remember, again, the people of God on the Day of Atonement, they were waiting for the priest to come out. Is he going to make it out? Because when he made it out, that meant that the sacrifice was accepted. That was a time for rejoicing. And our waiting for Christ's return isn't wondering, will the sacrifice be accepted? The sacrifice has been accepted. When we end our time on Good Friday, when we reflect upon the cross of Christ, we often have said the phrase, Mission accomplished, sacrifice accepted. When Jesus died on the cross, that's when the acceptance of the sacrifice was made. When we await Christ, we are not waiting for forgiveness. We are waiting to experience the full benefit of being part of his family. The full benefit of being able to be in his presence without hindrance. Think about the place where there's going to be no crying or tears, at least not ones of sadness. There'll be ones of joy. No no hindrance from, from sin or struggle that you have in your life. No physical hindrance, no emotional hindrance. You'll be fully aware. Your conscience will be fully cleansed. There won't be the struggle of going and having intimacy with Christ because you'll be in his presence. You won't be thinking about anything else. They'll just be praise of the Lamb. That's why Isaac Watts puts in his hymn, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When we grasp what Christ has done, we eagerly await. We eagerly await him. I want to leave you with this story about a doctor who served in a rural village. This doctor was noted both for his professional skill and his devotion to Christ. After his death, his books were examined. Several entries had had been written across with red ink. Forgiven. Too poor to pay. Unfortunately, his wife was of a different disposition insisting that these debts be settled. She filed a suit before the proper court. When the case was being heard, the judge asked her, is this your husband's handwriting in red? She replied that it was. Then said the judge, not a court in the land can touch those whom he has forgiven. Jesus writes in bold crimson letters across our lives. 
forgiven. Forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we are a forgiven people. And I ask God that as we are reminded of the seriousness of our sin, would that simply have the effect of us coming in confession and being far more aware of the forgiveness for that sin? Would we not walk around in guilt and condemnation, but rather freedom with the anticipation that Jesus is coming back? So I ask God right now for you to meet us in this moment, that we wouldn't rush on as we are reminded about what Christ has done. So meet each one who's here. Meet each one who's at home watching online. That we would know more than anything that we are forgiven. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.